But as we get started, uh, we're going to talk about this, this topic that all of us can relate to. Uh, we're going to start with this idea of trials in our lives. We're going to be in the book of James. And then we're going to go to the book of Hebrews to kind of find the solution or how we operate in these trials that all of us face. And so the first person that we're going to look to is the half-brother of Jesus. I preached uh, from his letter to the church a few weeks ago. We're back rewinding to the first chapter. But we're going to look at the half-brother of Jesus and what he says about trials, what he says about temptation, what he says about overcoming, and then how that's a catalyst for us as the church to make changes in how we view life and how we operate. And so James is an interesting character. And he's an interesting character because he has this vantage point that no one else has in that he's the half-brother of Jesus and he's seen trials and temptations in a way that no one else has. He's also seen Jesus in his perfection since birth. And so as he puts this idea on display for the church, he just has a different mindset. One of his mindsets that's so beautiful to the church is, if anyone would have known that Jesus was a hoax, it would have been his brother James, because Jesus says, I'm perfect, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if anyone would have known that was a bunch of baloney and should have never been followed, it would have been the brother of Jesus because he was with him since birth. He saw him as a little kid. Maybe they shared a bunk. We don't know. He saw what could have been all of his imperfections, but he saw that he actually was the Messiah, and he saw him die, and he saw him rise. And then the Bible, or church history, tells us that James doesn't just believe that Jesus is Messiah. He believes it to the point of putting his money where his mouth is, or his mouth, yeah, money where his mouth is, so to speak, and he actually dies himself for the cause. Church history talks about James and what happens to James. And around 62, 63 AD, James himself was murdered for the cause. Paul the Apostle calls him the pillar of the church. And what history tells us, the Bible doesn't tell us, but what history tells us about James as he's going to have this conversation on trials is that he understood what he was talking about. What history tells us is that there were people that were so upset with him that they took him to the top of a temple and they publicly and shamefully, shamefully threw him off this temple openly onto the ground where church history says he didn't die. When you talk about going through stuff. And so when he gets to the bottom and he doesn't die, they're not satisfied, and so they stone him to death after they threw him off the temple. And so it's within this context that James talks about struggle. It's within this context that James says the key to everything is to persevere. There are going to be things that are hard in life. In fact, what's interesting about his letter is it's very fitting. He sees Jesus struggle. He sees the apostles struggle. He sees himself in the midst of the struggle, in trials of life. And the first thing he does is he talks about it in his letter to the church. And so here's why that's important. Uh, my father-in-law, who I've said so many times is a mentor to me in my life, is in Fargo. And for 35 years, he was a news anchor. He was the Ron Burgundy of Fargo, North Dakota. And here's what my father-in-law has done historically throughout the lineage of the Shower Clan. He has videotaped and taken pictures of everything that he has seen with his kids, with his grandkids, with his in-laws. 
He listens to every sermon. He loves the stories. He's totally vested in all of our lives because everything through my father-in-law, Austin, is through the lens of a new story of life. And here's what he told me a long time ago. He said, there's nothing bigger than the lead story, right? There's nothing bigger than the lead story. And the reason I tell you that is because James opens up this letter, and in a sense, he's saying, I'm going to lead with this. All, all news people race to the scenes to first catch the breaking news, to catch the lead story. And so what James says is this is the first thing I'm going to tell you, how to overcome struggle, because it's the lead story of the faith. It's the lead story of the faith. Look at what James 1, 1 through 4 says. James, the servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes of the dispersions, he says greetings, and then he says this, and underline some stuff. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Verse three, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and the steadfastness has its full effect that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. All right, so here's the profound insight from the half-brother of Jesus Christ himself. He says, with all wisdom, something so basic that we all know to be true, no matter what time period you're living in, no matter your ethnicity, no matter if you were male or female, no matter if you were young or old, he makes this profound insight that you can't miss. Are you ready for it? It's something your dad told you. Life is hard. Life is hard. Life is hard. And so James is talking about trials, and he's talking about real trials. He's not talking about some of our trials, I'm kind of projecting from last week, and he's not talking about if your kid is the star of the basketball team or if they make varsity. He's not talking about, you know, the trial of first facing persecution because your car has 100,000 miles on it. He's not talking about the American struggle necessarily. He's saying there are real things like throwing off a building, stoned in the head types of things that you will face in life if you serve Jesus potentially. Like, I don't know what your struggle is, but we all have one. Life is hard. That's a promise. Life is hard. Chuck is in Peru right now with a church that's called New Life that has the adopted statement of faith that we operate in, that listens to sermons online, that we are totally vested in. There's multiple campuses in Peru, and the average person attending the church service right now being preached by one of the pastors that's on staff at New Life is about four bucks a day. Life is hard. Life is hard. And so what do you do with it? It is the common denominator that we have with those that know Jesus and those that don't know Jesus. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this lately, but it's a bit of a tumultuous time period, is it not? We tend to disagree on a lot. You start talking politics with people that don't know Jesus, it's a little different potentially than yours. You start talking meaning of life, you start talking morality, you start talking about what it looks like to have a marriage. All of these things were on a different playing field oftentimes. 
But when you start talking about this common denominator, that there is struggle in life, that life is hard, all of a sudden now we can all wrap around this idea. And so here's how we're going to start. We're going to talk about trials, and then we're going to talk about perseverance. But here's the very basic starting point, and it's not even in any type of notes. I'm just going to go over it as a way of review from this chapter. Here is what James is not saying. What James does not say about trials is this. He does not mean that God is somehow punishing you in the midst of your trial. I think that's worth bringing up because I know that people have that. Even if they don't think it, they subconsciously feel that, and it bleeds out in the counseling process. Because you are going through something does not mean that in any way God is punishing you. Here's another one. It does not mean when you go through the trials that you will face that God has abandoned you. Maybe you have some anger towards God because you feel like in your theology you never should have struggled. And in the midst of your struggle, you're saying, God, where are you? I didn't sign up for this. Here's another one that's even a little harder to swallow. It does not mean when you're in the struggle, when you're in the pain, when you're in the, you know, the pit of despair, if that's your current circumstance, you don't have a promise that it's soon going to be over. Now, through the lens of eternity, yes, it's soon going to be over. But do you have this promise that you're struggling this week and then next week it's all going to be better? The Bible doesn't give you that promise. Right? The promise of Scripture is that in the struggle, Christ is with you. And so it's not God punishing you. It's not God abandoning you. It doesn't mean that the pain's gonna be over soon. Here's another one. And this one is just, for me, something that I gotta bring up. James does not mean that you will ever fully understand the reason that you're going through the trial. How many of you are control freaks, self-diagnosed? How many of you always want the answer? You have to answer the why. I I can literally go crazy trying to answer the why to everything in life. I mean, up one in the morning on the pillow, driving my wife crazy. Well, this is why this could have happened, and this is what this person's thinking. She's like, go to bed. Go to bed. Take some Benadryl. Do what you got to do. James does not mean that you'll ever fully understand every reason you're going through every trial that you'll ever face. It is way easy, self-diagnosed, to overanalyze the process. This is where it gets cheesy. This is where non-Christians look at us and go, I don't know, they're a little weird, right? I mean, like, here's an example. The reason I fell down and broke my foot in middle school is so that I could join the school band instead of playing basketball, and now I have this special ministry for those who play the trombone. Have you ever heard stuff like that? Right? And you're like, ah, you're weird, right? I don't know. Maybe you just stunk at basketball. We don't know, right? I mean, but you can do that. You don't always get those types of answers, but here's what we do know. Here's what we do know from James, the brother of Jesus. Here's what we can understand about trials. And if you're going through something, you might want to write this down. And the first thing that we do know, according to James, is that your trials are a test. And unfortunately, based on my own scholastic performance growing up, tests present two options, pass or fail. Pass or fail. You ever heard someone say, man, if I would have known what I know now, I should have been a doctor. I'm thinking, yeah, I should have been a doctor, except I'm not that smart. Pass or fail. I didn't pass enough tests. And so what God did is he made me a pastor, right? So, I mean, pass or fail. Trials are a test. And when you pass the test, it can be a massive opportunity for growth. Trials, because they're a test, have the capacity to grow you in your faith, like James talks about, but they can also absolutely expose a lack of faith in your life. 
And so you can fail that test too, but it, but it puts that on display. Passing a test can create growth that turns into opportunity, or failing a test can expose that you're not where you thought you were in your faith. We see this all the time with people in the midst of their struggle. We look at the failure as the problem, but really the failure of the test is just exposing, look at me, what was already going on in your heart when things were good. Tracking? Right? It's a pass or fail opportunity. It's not the problem that's the actual problem. It's showing you your heart. And so what it can produce is what James calls this thing called steadfastness in your life. That's what the test shows to be true. Do you have perseverance? Do you have steadfastness in your life? Write that down. Your trials produce steadfastness. Here's what it is. Steadfastness could be defined like this, that Christ is showing you all you ever need is him. Right? Life is great. Money's flowing. Marriage is producing. Kids are respectful. Right? Life is good. You have all you need in Christ. Marriage is on the rocks, kids are rebelling, job is in ruins. I mean, all you need is Jesus Christ because you have steadfastness in your life. It's showing you that Jesus is your only hope. That Jesus Christ is your only hope. Steadfastness. The early church got this. And then James says this, stay with me. Are you with me? All right, stay with me, it's important that in the midst of this steadfastness, that you can actually have the maturity to lack nothing. Lack nothing. Who in here can even admit to that? That in the midst of my good times and my bad times, I have the capacity in Christ to lack nothing. This is a maturity that most of us don't have. And so here, here's the third thing, and I'm gonna switch to the book of Hebrews. That these trials have to be coupled with, they demand perseverance. If you wanna make it through the trial and you wanna have this standing firm steadfastness that James talks about, then you have to walk in this perseverance that's promised in the pages of scripture. The, the, the biblical language for perseverance is this idea, it's this word picture of standing firm. That's how it translates. It's actually something that the early church would have understood. It was the idea of a Roman soldier holding his post in the middle of battle. Right? Then no matter what's coming at you, that you're just standing firm and you're saying, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is, is sinking sand. I'm just gonna stand here, I'm gonna endure because Christ is enough and I'm gonna lack nothing in my life regardless of the circumstance because circumstance does not control me. Write this down. Your trials were not intended to break you. Your trials were intended, here's the test, to transform you. I'm gonna say that again. Your, your trials were never intended, at least by God, by Satan, yes. Your trials were never intended to break you. Your trials were intended to transform you. It's this idea, this perseverance that we can cling to. It's like spiritual weightlifting. Right, what's the intent of lifting weights? To get what? To get stronger. But what first has to happen? Do you know what happens right after you lift weights? You get weaker. 
Your muscles break down and then they build up stronger. And so perseverance can be thought of as this idea of, of spiritual weightlifting in your life. And so many Christians are spiritually anemic because they have no perseverance. Right? When, the, when the going gets tough, they quit. When relationships get tough, they bail. When their job is hard, they quit. When church is hard, they bail. When they have a moral disagreement with God because they want to do this over here and God says to do this and his word's unchanging, they just say, you know what? I'm not going to stand firm in this. I'm not going to hold steadfast. I am not going to persevere. This was a deal breaker for me. I want to do what I want, when I want, with whom I want, and I can do that because I'm the God of my own life. That's not perseverance. Perseverance has a process. It's the same for everyone. One of the things I'm learning as I'm getting older in life is that most of life isn't as complicated as I've made it. Most of life is fairly simple, but look at me, it's just very difficult to apply, amen? Those things that are, that are very difficult are kind of few and far between. Most of it's simplistic in its understanding, but in its application, because I'm a sinner, it's very difficult. That's steadfastness. That's perseverance in my life. And so the writer of Hebrews, whoever it is, a lot of people think it's Paul, but we don't know, lays out this simple script for what it looks like to persevere. And, and I want to read it to you. It's, it's in the Disciplines of a Godly Man. You can find it there on your own. We'll use some of the analogies from the book. But in the last few minutes we have together, I want to read to you what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12. Life's hard for the early church. And the writer says this, verse 1. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight. Good time to underline scripture. It's coming up. Don't miss it. Underline it. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. How does, how does sin cling? Like a bad high school relationship. It clings closely. It clings too closely. I thought that's good. I'm going to use that second service. That's funny. <laughs> and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Verse 2, looking to who? Wake up. Looking to who? Looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, for the joy that has been set before him endured at the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And so the idea is, I'm just going to walk through them real quick. The first thing that the writer is telling us is this. If you want to persevere, there's something that everyone who perseveres has to do. It's a non-negotiable. It is an easy script to comprehend. It is a very difficult script to follow through with. The first thing you have to do is let go of that sin that clings, and it clings closely. Isn't that true in your life? That it clings to you. That it's needy and it's damaging. And that for whatever reason, there's a sin in your life that has probably been pervasive in your life from the time that you can remember that you just had this proclivity towards this one thing and you're saying, God, can you please just take this thing, this thorn in my flesh away from me? And, and the Bible is telling us this, that you can get rid of it, but you have to persevere. You have to persevere. You have to be committed to it. And if you're not committed to it, then nothing changes if... Nothing changes. And so my question to you is very simple. What is it? What is it? Because the reality is 
That thing that clings closely is something that we all have. It just takes different shapes and sizes contingent on your personality, your makeup, your wiring, whatever. But what we know is if we persevere, we all have that sin that clings so closely to our lives. And the book talks about it's maybe for some people it's jealousy. You just have a jealous heart. Like so, someone else wins and you're, you're mad, right? There are a few, I know some people are, are jealous, but there are a few that, that just seem to be all-encompassing. One of them, specifically working with people, is lust. Then in your heart you said, I want to get rid of this, I want to get rid of this, I'm going to get rid of this. It's clinging closely, it's destroying my heart, it's destroying my soul, it's destroying my mind. And you have tried and you've tried and you've tried and it's something that's pervasive in your life. It clings closely. For all of us, because I think you can take the word sin and replace it with this word in the Bible all day long, for all of us it's this issue of pride. No one has arrived at a place of humility. It's a sin that clings closely to us. Maybe for you it's anger. Maybe for you it's lying. Maybe for you it's addiction. That you think you have everyone fooled and your life's falling apart. And so you need to be committed to getting into CR on Friday nights and getting support. Sin that clings closely. There's this analogy in the book I'm going to share with you. I never thought about it before. But it's this analogy of a fly and a plant. Anyone ever heard of a Venus flytrap? I don't think we have those around here, right? I don't know. But, but I was reading about that, and I kind of just glanced over it, and I thought, it's really good. I'm going to bring that up in church. And the writer says that when sin attracts you, it holds close like a Venus flytrap. And so here's what happens. I, I don't know what the IQ of a fly is, but I'm assuming it's pretty darn low, okay? Just watching them flying around aimlessly, they look pretty stupid. But uh, here's what the Venus flytrap, there's a plant that's carnivorous, that it actually eats, eats things, that it feeds off of the blood and the, and the life of a fly, which is, is kind of cool, right? I mean, that's, that's just, it's evidence of God to me. But there's a thing called a Venus flytrap, and so a fly in all of its infinite wisdom lands on the Venus flytrap and it lands on the petals, and it's attracted to the sweetness of the sticky thing that in the little tentacles that actually start engulfing very quickly the fly as it lands on the petal. And so the fly realizes that it's in trouble, but then it also realizes, we think, no one's ever asked the fly, right? We think it realizes that it's in trouble, but then we see from the fly's actions that after just a little bit of time on the fly, on the plant, it goes, oh my goodness, this stuff is, I'm sticking to it, I'm in a real situation, but then it likes the taste of what it's sticking to, and it starts eating it again, and when it starts eating it again, here's what happens. It tries to get free, it gets tired, it's enticed by the sweet residue of the plant, and again it starts eating the plant, and then the edges of the leaf fold inward, forming a closed fist, and two hours later, look at me, I'm, I'm not a scientist, I don't know if you knew that, and two hours later, that fly, there's nothing left of it. Because it's holding closely to that thing that's bringing death in its life. Edges of the leaf folding inward, forming a closed fist. Two hours later, there is nothing left but skin of the fly, and then the plant repeats the process with another fly, and another fly, and another fly, bringing death. And so what the writer's telling us is if you want to persevere, the process looks like you've got to let go of that stuff. Because the definition of insanity, I mean, we've said it a million times, you know it, right? doing it over and over again. You cannot be free. Here's what he's saying. You cannot be free with that weight around your neck. You cannot persevere unless you surrender. 
And the process of perseverance demands that you get rid of sin. If you're wondering why you can't seem to have victory, it's because you won't lay it down. This is kind of the time in the sermon where you start looking away, looking down, wondering what time this is going to be over. You have to engage in this process. No babies are crying. It's silent in here. Listen to me. If you're online, listen. If you want to know why you can't have victory, it's because you will not let go of that sin. And it's non-negotiable. It's non-negotiable. The writer says you got to let go of sin, then you got to run the race. Defined as patiently gutting it out. And running the race of your faith much, looks much less like a sprint and much more like a marathon. Race, races are cool in the sense that we all run the race, but all of our races are individually mapped out for us. And so in a sense, we all do the same thing, but in another sense, it's all different depending on, on who God has called you to be and what he's called you to do in your life. Your race looks different than mine, but the non-negotiable is we all run the race. We all have the finish line. We all get the same thing at the finish line. We all get Christ himself if we're in Christ and we're worshiping and serving and loving him. And so the writer says you have to run this race You have to let go of the sin. And so this was the metaphor. This was the analogy that 2,000 years ago, if you were an Olympic athlete, you would run the race, and and then people that ran the race well were adored in the culture around them, and you had to get rid of everything that was extra weight in your life. And so what they knew about this metaphor is people would run naked because of it. They had no clothes on because every article of clothing was weighing them down. And so the writer is saying, you have to get rid of everything that's a hindrance, even your clothes when you run the race. And that's how you have to deal with sin and then you have to engage in the process and you have to chart out the race and you have to run it with Christ. Everyone has a different race. Some of you, your life hasn't been that hard. It's been a pretty straight course. There there hasn't been a lot of elevation. It's been smooth sailing. It's been downhill. You have a few twists and turns, but not a lot. You just kind of had a nice hand dealt to you in a sense. Others of you, by the time you can even remember, there were so many turns in this thing because of things going on in your home, it was just like almost like a blur. Your innocence was taken at too young of an age. And God considers you worthy to run this marathon in a very unique way where all of those twists and all of those turns and all of the incline All of that was specifically geared for you to be made more like his son, Jesus Christ. And he doesn't give you anything that you can't handle. I read this. I want to share it with you, just this idea. Perseverance has nothing to do with giftedness. Because some things in life do have to do with giftedness. But perseverance has nothing to do with giftedness and has everything to do with your heart. The writer wrote this as well. He said, perseverance is not for sprinters. It's for faithful plotters. I never heard the term plotting for running. It's the fast and slow, the strong and weak, one who puts one foot in front of the other and repeats the process. It's a marathon. And so we engage in the process. That Christ is at the finish line. Some of you are going to finish first. Some of you are going to have easy sailing. 
Some of you aren't gonna have a lot of roadblocks. Others of you have so many twists and turns and you've been so out of shape spiritually that man, it is just a struggle for you. You're going, why can't I figure this out? And what I want you to hear this morning is perseverance isn't you figuring it out. It's you following Christ and letting him run the race with you. I think I told you this before, one of the proudest moments I've ever had in marriage in the last 20 years. My wife, who in, in no way is a runner. I mean, you look up runner in the, on the internet, Wikipedia, you'll never see her face, okay? She's not a runner. She ran the Brooklyn, or, sorry, she ran the Brookings Marathon. And there was lots of runners. And, and I was watching all of them, uh, mainly because she wasn't done yet, and that's what you do, right? People come in, her friends come in. One of her friends, who's just an athlete, was like, I'm going to do this thing under two hours. And she gets in in like an hour and 50. Yay, I did it. She gets her little robe thing that she's wearing. And then over and over again, people start coming in, start, people start coming in. And then you see the real strong ones, the ones that probably didn't train well enough, and they're just gutting this thing out. And you know if you had a camera, part of the time they're walking. And then you get to the last third of the group, and you know part of the time they're probably standing there like this at some point, drinking water, and really starting to say things that are ungodly under their breath. That was my wife. That was my wife. I am proud to say that my bride, several years ago, who never runs, had the capacity to finish the Brookings Marathon dead last. <laughs> dead last. There was someone that had some physical deficiencies that finished the race, and this person, have I told you this story? Does anyone know this story? This person that finished the race, this is actually, probably, i got to be careful how I say this, this person that finished the race, everyone's cheering. Everyone's just, yay, oh, it's an inspiration to all of us. And I'm going, did my wife die? Is she dead in Brookings, South Dakota? Because it's been like five days and she's still somewhere. <laughs> GPS tracked. And then like five minutes later, we thought this is the last guy. Everyone thought that was it. They're wrapping up and going home. All of a sudden, I see Ann. She's just like this. And she's saying things under her breath that would probably get me fired as a pastor. And, and I, I gave her a big hug. I said, honey, you did it. How was it? She says, I'm never doing that again. It's the worst experience of my life. And then I said, but there was this guy, and everyone was cheering, and everyone was clapping. She said, that guy might have had some deficiencies, but he was the biggest jerk I've ever met. That's what she said about him. She said, I tried to talk to him the whole race. And every time I tried to talk to him, he'd ignore me, and he'd go past me, and he'd go past me, and he'd go past me. And finally, I gave up, and I just finished last. But my point, my point is this, that running the race in Christ isn't for the people that know how to sprint necessarily. It's for the faithful plotters that put one foot in front of the other. And when you put one foot in front of the other, here's what James promises. He says, you're going to get some joy as you go through these trials. The writer of Hebrews says, Jesus goes to the cross and he considered it what? Joy. He considered it joy because he had his eyes fixed. On God the Father, true joy. He's in the garden. He's sweating drops of blood. He's headed to the cross. He doesn't have happiness. Right? Happiness isn't joy. Happiness is fleeting. Happiness is circumstantial. Happiness is I got to raise. Happiness is, you know, things are going well in my life. Jesus is going to the cross and sweating blood. He doesn't have happiness in the moment. He has rooted joy in the garden because he's running the race close to the finish line. Here's the last thing that we're going to talk about. The what we have to do, this is what the writer of Hebrews says, what we have to do is we have to focus on Christ. This is how we persevere. 
We get rid of sin. We run the race. And every racer knows you don't look back. You don't look sideways. You look towards the prize. You look towards the finish line. There's a race in 1954. I was telling an elder this morning about it. It's in the book. British Empire Games. There were two runners in the world. One was from British Empire. One was from Australia. And they were running this race. They were only two men in the world. The guy that won the race was a doctor. It was a different time period. They were the only two men in the world that could break a four-minute mile at the time. And so it was much anticipated. And Roger Bannister is trailing behind John Landy the whole time. It comes to the final lap. I watched it in black and white on YouTube. Three different videos of their story on this race. And he's, and he's running, and he's running, and he's running, and he knows if I can just stay close, I'm a good finisher. This guy's better than me. He's more athletic than me, but I know how to finish strong. And so the Bible, or the Bible, the story goes like this, that Roger Bannister's trailing, and John Landy's in the lead, and all of a sudden, John Landy, at the very last bit of the stretch of the race in the mile, just, he, he doesn't hear Bannister behind him, and so he makes this fatal mistake as a runner. He looks to the left. You can go watch it on YouTube if you've never heard it or seen it. He looks to the left, and then you see Bannister go right by him on the right side, and he kind of gives him like the peace sign, right? I mean, he's just peace. I mean, he wins the race because he doesn't look back. He doesn't look to the side, and his opponent is so focused on what's behind him that he doesn't have the focus where it should be on the finish line. That's our faith. That's our faith. We look to the right. We look to the left. We look back. The Bible says, look forward, look to Christ. That Jesus ran the race before we did. And the beauty of the struggle, the beauty of the struggle is that we're all in it together. The writer of Hebrews breaks it down like this. He says, therefore, therefore, run the race. You're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. A cloud of them. Who's in the cloud? We don't know who's in the cloud. It's the, it's the spiritual giants in the Old Testament. You know, the Moseses and the Abrahams and the Davids and the Josephs, that they're, they're all looking ahead to Christ's coming. And now we're looking back at what he did on the cross and looking forward to him returning for us. And now thousands of years later, we're in this race. We're just a heartbeat away from the finish line. We don't know how long it's going to take. And the Bible gives us this picture of the early church and now the church 2,000 years later where they are surrounding us. They are encouraging us. We're a family. And they're going, you've got this. You've got this. You've got this. I know this happened to you, but trust me, Christ is enough. Focus on Christ. Don't look back. Surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. I'll close with this, I promise. I had a long week. There's a lot going on in the church. People have some stuff. And so I, in this week, I, I, I drove out of town. There's a guy that uh, is related to a, a close family of the church, and he's on his very, very last leg. I mean, he, he's, he's a few days out. Last stages of cancer. Uh, his, his, his name is Elgin, just a, just a cool guy. He's 68 years old. He's a, he's a grandpa to several girls in our church. And I thought, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go see him. I'm going to drive out of town. I'm going to pray with the family. I'm going to hang out. And I got there, and uh, he's been in church and he, I think he's listening a little online, so he knows me, and we got to know each other better maybe these last two months. And he got this rough diagnosis a few months ago, and now he's at the very, very, very end where he's not eating, he's not drinking anything, and he's just waiting to go be with Jesus. And I, and I get into this hospital room, and here's a guy that's run the race in a unique way. He's had some tough times financially. He's had some tough times emotionally. He's had some tough times relationally. 
But there's this thing about this 68-year-old man. He loves Jesus. It's very authentic. He's humble. And surrounding his bed are his granddaughters and his daughter and his son-in-law and some extended family. And they are loving him and serving him and holding his hand. And then I get a text last night that they're singing hymns around his bed. It's, it's, it's what we all want when we go see Jesus. And he's having this last part of his life where they are really just honoring him as their grandfather. And I want you to get that picture in your mind. He's surrounded, in a sense, by a great kind of witnesses from, from the Bible, but he's just surrounded by his family. And there's this idea within that as he's going to be with Jesus, it's okay to let go. You ran the race. You can cross the finish line. Christ is here. It's okay. And his story is not unique. Right? In the blink of an eye, whether you get 68 years, 100 years, 50, we don't know. I got 42 so far, but there is a reason that I'm running. There's a reason that I'm plodding foot after foot after foot. Because Christ is enough. And as I persevere and I walk in the truth of the gospel, that I have this joy in my life where I put Christ on display and my main goal is to run the race well that I stand before Jesus Christ himself, what could be a blink of an eye from now, we don't know. And he looks at me as his child and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the point. That's the point of perseverance. Where are you at? Where are you at? What are the obstacles? What's the sin that's clinging so closely to your heart? What is that area of your life where you're saying, I want to run the race, but I, I, I detoured, I got off track because I wanted to do what I wanted to do? Christ is taking this moment, he's calling you out, and he's saying, come back to me, your way is broken, but I'm the healer. You're not in charge, you were never intended to be, but I am enough. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We're all, we're all in this together. We're all in this race, this marathon. And our one common denominator is that we have you. And so for those in this room, they don't, they don't know you as Savior. They've never surrendered their life to you. I would just ask in this moment, you would convict them of their sin. You would show them who you are, that you're not a good guy. You, you are the Messiah, that you are the conqueror, that you rose from the dead. You died on the cross, but you rose from the dead. You conquered sin. You conquered death. And that their job in this moment is to just say, I can't do this on my own. I have tried, and these sins are clinging closely, and I didn't even know who you are, but I want to, in this moment, I want to give you my sin. I want to give you my life. If that's where you're at, everyone's eyes are closed, just look at me for a second so I know who you are. Look at me so I know who you are. You're saying, I want to serve Jesus Christ. He's the Messiah. He's going to rule and reign over my life. Look at me if that's you. Close your eyes. God, you, you see those people that just responded. Open their heart to asking for forgiveness of their sins, picking up their cross and following you, getting in the race, getting in the marathon, and keeping their eyes on the prize. I, I pray that as they take that step of saying, Jesus, you're the Messiah, and I need you in my life, that next week, Sunday, they would get baptized. And for the rest of us that know you, but we've detoured, God, 
help us to run the race and persevere. We pray these things in your precious and holy name. And everybody said, amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray this message connected with you, and we hope it gave you another way to connect with Jesus and your New Life family. For more ways to get plugged in here at New Life, you can visit our website at www.newlifeaberdeen.org. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week.